Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon on Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7, stated the doctrine of that passage in this way. In, in typical fashion, he unfolds the exposition, gets to his point, and he says, now here's, here's the doctrine, here's what we learn from this passage, or here's what we're going to take from it and then make application. Here was his doctrinal axiom, if you will. Quote, the gospel dispensation is finished wholly and entirely in free and glorious grace. There is glorious grace shines in every part of the great work of redemption. The foundation is laid in grace. The superstructure is reared in grace. And the whole is finished in glorious grace. And then he goes on to unpack that. And his four opening points were these. Number one, it was of free grace that God had any thoughts or designs of rescuing mankind after the fall. Number two, especially was it of rich and boundless grace that He gave His only Son for our restoration. Number three, it was of mere grace that the Son was so freely willing to undertake our salvation. And number four, the application of redemption of the gospel by the Holy Spirit is of mere grace. Now this is just one example from history that sort of uh, fixes this, this truth in our mind that hopefully we understand. Christianity is the religion of grace. We talk about grace. We preach about grace. We sing about grace. Grace is one of the, the, the top themes of our faith. And grace is actually so prevalent a theme of our faith that Sadly, often it's wrangled from the text of Scripture. It's, it's ripped from its biblical definitions and its biblical origins, and it's made and taken to mean things that it was never meant to mean. Sometimes people will even use the term grace as a cloak for their sin. Or they'll even use grace as an excuse for their ongoing worldliness. Well, that doesn't make any sense, as I trust we'll see, that God's grace is not to be used that way. That, that is the very opposite of what grace is for us. And so it's been my prayer this evening that we will see God's grace for what it is and for what it is not. So then we'll jump in here at chapter 29 on the grace of God. We read, The word grace denotes unmerited favor and refers to God's willingness to treat His creatures not according to their own merit or worth, but according to His own abundant kindness and overflowing generosity. In God's grace is found a great manifestation of His love. Now you'll remember the same thing was said about mercy last week. And as we saw last week, many of God's perfections are most are seen most clearly and and distinctly apart from each other when we view them from the angle of the creature. So we saw last week that mercy, as he says, could be a manifestation of God's love, but it's a manifestation of God's love with the helplessness of the creature in view. 
In other words, because the creature is so low, so pitiful, and God, the way that God condescends to that creature, we call that mercy. Well, the same is true with His grace. As we just read, it's a manifestation of His love. But then if we were to ask, what is the... What picture of the creature should we see to help us understand God's grace? What, what attribute of the creature is brought to the forefront as we view this attribute of God? And the answer is our undeserving state or our state of undeservedness. As he said, grace is God's willingness to treat His creatures not according to their own merit and worth. Or merit or worth. Now that raises the question. What do we deserve according to our own merit and worth? What have we merited? What are we worth? I won't spend a lot of time here, but some of you will, will recognize the language if I say we could take a, a, a brief journey down the, a, a, a short way down the Romans road. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all men are sinners. And in Romans 6.23, Paul says the wages of sin, of which we are all guilty, is death. So what have we merited? Death. Romans 3.12 says all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. So if we're considering our own merit and worth, what have we merited? Death. What are we worth? Nothing. Worthless. Now it's from that perspective. We've merited nothing but death and we're worth nothing. It's from that perspective that we can view the grace of God rightly. In that condition, meriting death, worthless, God then acts or is disposed towards us in a certain way and we call that grace. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 145, verse 8. Psalm 145, Verse 8. Here we read, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now you know that that's, that's taken from the way that God revealed Himself to Moses. In, in the book of Exodus. But God is here described as gracious, or He is characterized by the, this might be a dangerous term, the dispensation of grace. Not in, not viewing history and dispensations, but in the, the dispensing of His grace. God is viewed or characterized by as, as one who puts out grace. If you think of a vending machine, you go to God, you push a button, what comes out? Grace. He gives grace. It says that he's slow to anger, which implies he has a reason to be angry, but he doesn't get there quickly. If we think about the nature of God in our sin, God is much slower to anger than we are. He's slow to anger, and then we have that, that phrase that the ESV translates, steadfast love. That's that word has said. We've seen it many times, which refers to the covenant faithfulness of God. He has bound himself to his people. So he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We read there that the word is translated from the Hebrew word kanun. 
This word is only used in the scriptures as an attribute of God. This, he's referring to the word that's translated gracious there. Other ideas communicated by the word are merciful, compassionate, kind, forgiving, clement, forbearing, tender-hearted, and benevolent. We've seen this many times. This, this one Hebrew word, we say, what does it mean? Well, it could mean, and then here's a whole bag of things. Well, which is it? Well, come down to the creature. As undeserving, as meriting death, as worthless, we would, we would call this grace or being gracious. And he points out that this is always applied to God. If you, if you look up, it's not that many times that this word is used in the Old Testament. If you look up every use, almost every single time it comes in this, this pair, merciful and gracious, the way that God revealed himself in, uh, to Moses. This is the God of the Bible. He's a God who is merciful and gracious. Let, let, let that, let revelation shape the way you think of God. He is merciful and gracious. Now turn to the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So here, God receives this title, the God of all grace. Now the comment there says, this, the word is translated from the Greek word charis. So here's the New Testament terminology of grace, charis which denotes kindness, favor, and goodwill. Again, another word with a, a, a broad span of meaning. Especially to the undeserving. It's considering us in our undeserving state. In the Scriptures, grace is God's unmerited favor to sinful man. God is the source of all grace. Every type and kind of grace. Multifaceted grace. Grace without measure is found in God Himself and flows from Him. And so again, anytime you see that, that language of title, the God of, you know that we're describing a, a distinguishing or defining character trait of God Himself. It's not merely saying, well, this one time He was gracious. Or this one time He dispensed grace. No, it's saying this is how He wants us to think of Him. He is the God of grace. He wants to be known according to this trait, grace. All right, now let's turn to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, Therefore... The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. So it, we read here, the Lord waits to be gracious. Now this same word is used elsewhere. One, one usage which I think helps paint a picture is Hosea 6.9, which says, As robbers lie in wait for a man. So you could picture that. 
robbers, thieves, are, are waiting, maybe in an alleyway. They're waiting for somebody to pass by so that they can leap out and attack him and beat him up and take his money. They're, they're lying in wait. Well, that same idea, that same word of, of the Lord waiting is used here of the Lord. We, we can almost picture, and again, this is humanly speaking, obviously, but we, we can imagine the Lord tarries looking for an opportunity to display His grace, to pour it out. Again, this is the God of the Bible. This is how He wants us to think of Him, as one who waits to be gracious. The note there says, speaking of Isaiah 30, 18, the context of this passage is the rebellion of God's people. They had abandoned their trust in God and entered into a sinful alliance with Egypt. Yet God delayed His punishment in order to give them ample opportunity to repent and return to Him. He did this because He is not like His faithless people. He is a righteous God who is faithful to His promises. The word gracious comes from the Hebrew word kanan, which means to be gracious or show favor. In the context of God's relationship with men, it is always an unmerited favor. Why? What have we merited? We've merited death, punishment, not favor. Anytime we get favor, it's unmerited. He says the word compassion, or the, the word that is translated in the ESV as mercy, is translated from the Hebrew word racham, which also denotes kindness or loving kindness. Now, oftentimes we imagine the very opposite. We imagine that God is, if He's waiting to do anything, again, we're speaking in, in human terminology, if God is waiting to do anything, it's to leap out and inflict His punishment upon us when He catches us in a sin. We imagine that God's like a, a state trooper waiting in the, in the median over, over a hill. He's just, anytime you see that, even if you're not speeding, you think, yeah, He's just trying to catch people. Yeah, that's His job. But we imagine that God's like that, that He's waiting for us to do something wrong, to pounce and to pour out judgment. But the picture of the Scripture, especially with His people, is the opposite. That God, we can imagine that He's standing at attention, observing and waiting eagerly for an opportunity to be gracious. He's looking for that occasion. Though in actuality, He, he never rests in giving His grace. It's not as though He stops giving grace to then give it. No, He's always giving grace, always looking for, waiting for that occasion because He's the God of all grace. Let's look at John chapter 1. Here we're, we're moving into what is the greatest manifestation of God's grace. John chapter 1. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 16 and 17, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what is the greatest manifestation of God's grace? Clearly it is the sending of His Son, the man Christ Jesus. Christ was full of grace and from Christ all who are in Him, all who are united to Him, receive grace. Like, like a branch to a vine, receiving the life flow from Christ. 
while the law was holy and righteous and good, the law did not bring with it the power to fulfill it according to God's requirement. In the coming of Christ, we see not only another more full revelation of who God is, but we see that He's a God of mercy and grace. Christ comes and brings with Him power. He gives grace to us so that not only is the righteous requirement upheld, God's, God's standard has not changed, but he, gives, he has grace upon those who have failed to meet that requirement, but also gives grace to us so that we might strive and actually walk in obedience. The law written on stone couldn't do that. You could read it all day long and walk away with no ability. But in Christ we have ability. The law did typify these things, but it wasn't the end of the matter. Christ comes as the fullest and greatest manifestation of grace. Now, the note here says, God has manifested His grace since the fall of Adam. I, don't, I want to qualify some of this, but pay attention to what He says. Don't hear what He, what he's, what he doesn't say. Even the gift of the old covenant law was the result of His unmerited favor or grace. However, the grace of God manifested in the person and work of Christ is so great that it eclipses all other manifestations to the degree that it is almost as though grace had never been or never before been manifested. All other examples of God's grace are types and shadows of the fullness found in Christ. They are like the light of a candle compared to the sun shining in its noonday brightness. Now when he says... The gift of the law was the result of God's unmerited favor, God's grace. We have to be careful not to take that to mean that the substance of the old covenant was a covenant of grace. And you'll hear this a lot from our, our uh, Presbyterian or Paedo-Baptist uh, friends and brothers. They'll say, well, was it not gracious that God gave the law? Well, of course it was. It was a gracious thing. But that doesn't mean that that covenant in its substance mediated grace. It was not a covenant of grace. So Christ comes and He reveals the same God that's revealed in the law. God's not changed, but Christ also bestows upon us the power that is needed to keep the law, the power that is needed to be conformed to that law through the covenant of grace. Uh, the next question is this. Are we saved through our own merits or through the grace of God? Now, now, Children, think about it, and if you want to, you can answer out loud. Can we be good enough to get to heaven? Is that what God commands us? Be really good and you can get to heaven. No. 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 Okay, now I want to prove that from the Scriptures. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Because a lot of people think, because when we read the Bible, we do come across commandments. We do come across God saying, do this, don't do that. We do see God punishing the wicked for their behavior, their sins. And so some people read that and they come to this conclusion. Oh, I, I see. In Christianity, if you're really good, you go to heaven. And if you're really bad, you go to hell. So I, I need to work really hard to be good so that I can go to heaven. That's not the teaching of the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now read the note. He says, in the Greek language, grace and faith, in that verse, are feminine gender nouns, but the pronoun that, or in the ESV, this, is neuter. Therefore, it's best to take the pronoun that, or this, as pointing to the fact that the entirety of our salvation is a gift from God. There is nothing of human merit in what has happened to us. Therefore, all boasting in self is eliminated. We are saved not by our works. You can't be good enough. We're saved by grace, or more particularly, God working according to this attribute of grace. God saves us. He is the God of grace, the God of all grace. And here we see an important point. Because if I said we're saved by grace and I try to disassociate that attribute from God Himself as if there's something over here that God sort of threw out, then I'm, I'm basically saying I'm saved by something besides God Himself. God is the Savior. God saves. So we say, when we say or read, by grace you have been saved, that's not opposed to God. It's that we could say God, working by grace, saves. Grace is not merely a disposition of God or a feeling that God has towards us. And we can get that picture when we hear unmerited favor because I can think favorably about a certain brand of potato chips at my house. I, I, they, I, I, I think favorably of them. I'm, I'm for them, not against them. That's not what we're talking about with God's unmerited favor. This is not something disassociated from God. This is God Himself. It's not just a feeling that God has. Grace is God saving us by His mighty power contrary to what we deserve. We deserve death. That's what we've merited. We are worth less, worth nothing. And we get life and salvation because of God's grace to undeserving sinners. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. 2 Timothy 1 9 says, speaking of God, the end of verse 8, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Can we be saved by our works? Are we saved by our works? No. Not because of our works. The Bible teaches explicitly, clearly, plainly the exact opposite. Now the note says, God called us and saved us, not because of who we are or what we have done, but because He purposed in Himself to save us even before the foundation of the world. The means of saving us would not be our merit, but His grace, through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, we find an interesting parallel. Moses declared, quote, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. Why did the Lord set His love upon Israel? Because He loved them. 
In other words, the Lord loves His people because He purposed in Himself to love us. His love for us is entirely an act of grace, not works. And in that passage, we just read that grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So beginning in eternity. But we could also say God has given us a person who is the grace of God to us. It's in a person. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's turn back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. Because here we're going to go continue going back into eternity and seeing God's eternal purpose. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. Speaking of God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He predestined us for adoption as sons, adoption to Himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. How did grace come to us? How were we blessed? In the Beloved. That's speaking of Christ. God's great purpose for saving sinful men is the manifestation of His unmerited favor leading to the praise of His name. The word grace is translated from the Greek word charis, we've seen that before, which denotes favor or goodwill, especially to the undeserving. Again, see that, that point. While the phrase freely bestowed, or the ESV translates it, He has blessed us, is translated from the Greek word karitao, which can also mean to favor or visit with favor. Notice the similarity between the words. Literally, God graced us with grace. Later, similar statements are made. Quote, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory, verse 12. And with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory, verse 14. What was God's will? What was God's eternal purpose? It was to bring many sons to glory. Even though in our sin we were not sons, we were enemies. That was His purpose from eternity, to bring us to Himself. A manifestation of His grace. Now look at chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How does the grace come? In Christ. The manifestation of the grace of God in the believer will only increase in magnitude throughout the long ages of eternity. In fact, God's kindness toward His people in Christ Jesus will be set before all creation as the premier exhibition or demonstration of the surpassing riches of His grace. Throughout all eternity, all of creation will learn how truly gracious God is by observing His ongoing kindness toward His people. God's grace is so immense and full of wonder that even eternity will not be long enough to comprehend it or to offer Him sufficient praise for it. We see that phrase, the riches of His grace. That reminds us of the superabundance of it. He's rich in grace, full of grace, abounding in grace. If we take into consideration the aspect of God's grace that's going to uphold us and, and that, that strengthens and sustains our spiritual life, well then it will be God's grace which sustains all of the elect 
in spiritual life for all of eternity. Just as with His mercy, there's more grace in God than we will ever need. He's rich in grace. You, you think about hanging out with a rich friend. They got a lot of money. Their parents got a lot of money. And their parents say, hey, y'all want to go to such and such a restaurant for supper? You don't think, well, I can't go there. I don't have any money. You think, well, I'm going. I know they're going to pay for it. You just go. They're rich. This is how it is with God. He's rich in grace. He offers His grace. He, he holds it out. You don't, you don't say, well, uh, I, for, I forgot my wallet. No, He's rich. Just take it. He's rich in grace. Abounding in grace. Now the question is, how should we respond? Let's look at Romans chapter 6. How should we respond to the grace of God revealed through Jesus Christ and the gospel? Because some people would say, well, if that's the way it is, if He's so rich and it's so free, why not sin? We, could, we can essentially live however we want to. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We should not continue in sin. As a matter of fact, what he's saying is that's not possible. He says in the note, Some might conclude that since we are saved by God's grace and not by works, it's acceptable to continue living in sin, or even worse, to increase our sinful activities so that the grace of God might become more evident. This is totally contrary to the will of God and the purpose of grace. Again, I would say it's not possible. And the next passage gives us, it turns this error completely on its head. Look at Titus chapter 2. We've seen this before. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. There we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The note there says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, the apostle exposes a wrong and unbiblical response to God's grace. In Titus 2, 11 to 13, he sets forth the true purpose of grace and the proper response to it. So, and maybe rather than thinking of our response to God's grace, we ought to think more in terms of what God's grace actually does to us, what it produces in us. When we read that, that passage in Titus, Titus isn't saying that God looks upon us favorably and then in response to that we say, you know what, since He's looking upon me so favorably, I'll just renounce my ungodliness. Now that, that happens, but that's not what it's saying there. What the passage is telling us what grace does. Grace brings salvation. And then grace trains us or educates us. Grace takes us into discipleship classes. That's kind of what the word means. It trains us. It trains us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us to renounce worldly passions. It takes us to school and shapes us into self-controlled, upright, and godly people. Grace is, grace is busy. Grace is effectual. Grace is powerful. 
some of y'all remember the, the, uh, the message by Jeremy Walker, uh, galvanized by grace and gripped by glory. And he, he described grace as the lady, the, the gym instructor who comes in with her hair up in a ponytail and you think she's going to take it easy and you go home and you wake up the next day and you can't move because she's worked you so hard. That's what grace is. Grace trains. It, it, it produces effectually alterations in us. That's grace. We might imagine how foolish it would be if someone went and took fire safety classes and then they came home and you saw them striking matches and throw them in the trash can, lit matches in the trash can, just striking them. And, and you said, what are you doing? You said, and they said, oh, don't worry. I took fire safety classes. It's okay for me to do this. Well, that'd be foolish. W- would it not be the opposite? Would it not be that when you took those classes, they trained you that that's what you don't do. That's the opposite of what you... Taking the class doesn't set you at liberty to act foolish, to do the very opposite. It trains you to do what you ought to do, and it's the same with grace. Grace is God working in us, God producing an outcome, God changing us. Grace is why we don't continue in sin. Grace is why when we do sin, we hate it. Grace is not an excuse to continue in sin. Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He's working hard. He says, I worked harder than all of the apostles. We look at the life of Paul and we say, What a life, what a man. Racing, as it were, to the finish line in all of his labors. You never, and, and he's often referred to as the apostle of grace. And you never see Paul saying, you know what? I'm the apostle of grace and that's why I'm kicked back in my lounge chair on the beach sipping my my fruity drink and I'm taking a break. Because there's grace. No, he says, I worked harder than everybody because of grace. It was grace working in me. That's grace. It's what it does. It works works us. Turn to 2 Peter 3.18. Second Peter 3.18, that, that was not, by the way, a wholesale condemnation of sitting on the beach and drinking a, a fruity drink. You just don't see Paul doing that. Second Peter 3.18, we are given this command, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So how are we to respond? Well, here we are to grow, but again, it's not just us responding of our own selves, but this is what grace produces. We're commanded to grow. He says, God has freely bestowed His grace upon us, Ephesians 1.6. How then do we grow in grace, as Peter commands? The idea is not that we are somehow lacking in grace and need to obtain more, but that we are to grow in the grace that has been given us in Christ. The grace of God is the sphere in which the believer now lives. Because of the grace of God manifested in the work that He has already done for us, the work He continues to do in us, the great promises He has given, has given us, and the life and strength that He makes available to us, we can and should grow in conformity to His Son and become increasingly pleasing to Him. 
We've talked before about this language that the old writers would use the plural form of grace is, in individual little traits of the grace of God. We, we often see them as pretty much synonymous as the fruit of the Spirit, what, what the Spirit produces in us. And if we are to grow in these, or, or the, the command, if, as we grow in these, it's the Spirit of God using the Word of God to transform us and renew our minds so that we live more and more after the fashion of Christ. And I'll get into a little more of that in a minute. But we are to grow in grace, and, and sometimes it helps to think of them in terms of grace is. Hebrews 4.16, let's look there. Another response. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, God's throne of judgment in response to our sin has been turned into a throne of grace through the work of Christ on Calvary. It is for this reason that we can draw near with confidence. The word confidence is translated from the Greek word, and I'm not going to try to pronounce that, which literally refers to freedom of speech and thus confidence or boldness. The greatest sinner will melt before the throne of God, but the smallest saint will stand boldly and confidently because of Christ. It is in this confidence that the writer of Hebrews commands us to come to the throne of God in prayer to find grace to help in time of need. Again, this does not mean that we are lacking in grace as if we don't have grace. What it means is that because of the grace that is ours in Christ, we should come before God and petition His help or aid in our time of need. Though all that we need is already ours, it must often be appropriated through believing and persevering in prayer to God. Oftentimes we do not have the help we need because we do not ask. Now that word appropriating is very important. Because he said, well, we've got to grow and we've got to get more of it. And we talk about getting more grace and grace upon grace. But he's also said, it's not like we lack. We have everything that we need. So which is it? Do I have everything we need or do I need to grow in it? Well, this word appropriate bridges that gap. To appropriate means to make it your own or to, to put it into use. And so he says we appropriate the grace that is already ours in Christ through believing, through faith. We come boldly asking in faith for the grace that we know we need and that is found in Him, and He gives it. But here's the thing. We don't really know what we need or lack at a practical level apart from the study of God's Word. This is why God's Word is so important. Because God's Word is going to reveal to us our sin. And God's Word is going to reveal to us the the, the the graces that are contrary to our sin. And our minds are renewed by the Spirit as we read and meditate upon God's Word. And where God's Word shows us that we are woefully short, we then go to the throne of grace to receive the grace needed. For example, we read in God's Word, we see that God is slow to anger, that Christ, we see Him dealing with His disciples, we say, wow, what, what patience, what long-suffering. And we see that a fruit of the Spirit is patience or long-suffering. Wow! And then we catch ourselves lashing out at our children or our spouses. We say, you know what? 
I need that grace. I need that patience. I need long-suffering. I see the grace set forth in Scripture. I, the, the Word of God has revealed my lack. Now, where do I go? I go to the throne of grace. I go to Christ, and from His fullness, I ask, would you, would you increase in me the grace of patience or, or long-suffering? And, and very often, that's going to result in a lot of other things. You'll say, He's, he might say, oh, you just think patience is, is your problem. Your problem is actually that you're prideful and that you think everything is about you and you don't love other people. And you, when you, once you get all of that stuff straight, you'll be a pretty patient person. But he gives the grace. He begins to work on us. But we have to appropriate it. We have to see what God's Word says about us in our sin, but also believe what it says about what he is willing to give and go to him and ask for it. And James says he gives more grace, James 4, 6. John Gill, commenting on that statement in James 4, 6, helps us to see how vast God's grace is in its application. Notice how he goes from grace to specific things. I'm trying to draw the correlation between our word grace and graces. He says, speaking of this, more grace or greater grace. He says, it's greater than the world can give, whose friendship is courted by men. The least measure of grace comma, of faith and hope and love. In other words, those are he's putting those under the category of grace, faith, hope, and love, graces, and of a spiritual knowledge of Christ and interest in Him, and of peace and joy and comfort, more graces. These are worth more than all the world and everything in it. Or, greater grace, more favors than the saints are able to ask or think. Or, greater grace, and larger measures of it, even of spiritual light and knowledge under the gospel dispensation than under the former dispensation, or where God bestows gifts qualifying for service and usefulness. And these are made use of and employed for such purposes. He gives more. So there would be an application of grace in the particular, what we call the spiritual gifts, the grace gifts, the charismata. That could be the more grace that he gives. He he goes on to say, or this may refer to internal grace wrought by the Spirit of God in the hearts of His people, more of which He may be said to give when He causes it to abound as to its acts and exercises. When faith grows exceedingly, that's a grace. Hope revives and is lively and abounds through His power and influence and love to God and Christ and one another, more graces. This abounds yet more and more. When there is a growth in every grace, and in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, so that this grace becomes a well of living waters, springing up into eternal life, which at last will have its perfection in glory. So he, he went grace, he gives more grace, and then he broke it up into all these little things. Faith, hope, love, peace, comfort, knowledge of Christ. These are all these little graces, these applications of the grace of God. And God gives them, but we have to go and ask, appropriate it in faith. And then... The last passage that we'll look at is Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Acts 20, 24, But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only... I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel 
of the grace of God. Now, again, the, the, the category here is our response. If God is so full of grace, how ought we to respond? Well, look at how Paul responded. He gave his life to testify of this grace in the gospel. The note says, this was the Apostle Paul's noble goal. Although our callings, gifts, and ministries may be different from his, we should all have this same ambition, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. That is the good news of God's grace shown to sinners in Jesus Christ. We deserve judgment and death. God sent His Son to take that judgment upon Himself and to die in our place. And through faith, that work is applied, appropriated, accredited to us by the Spirit of grace so that we are reconciled to God. That is the, the, the gospel of God's grace. He came to undeserving, unmeriting sinners and He gave His Son. We've been given grace in Christ before the world began. We've received grace in salvation in time. We have all the grace that we'll ever need in Christ, and yet we, we need to appropriate more, so we come to the throne of grace boldly and yet humbly asking in faith for more grace, and He gives it and we grow in grace. And all of, all of that so that we become walking, talking, living, breathing testimonies of the grace of God. Now I opened with a... A reference to Jonathan Edwards, that, that sermon. He closed that sermon by saying this, and this will sort of uh, tie together what we said this morning and what we're seeing here. Quote, A great part of your happiness in heaven to all eternity will consist in this, in praising of God for His free and glorious grace in redeeming you. And if you would spend more time about it on earth, you would find this world would be much more of a heaven to you than it is. In other words, if we spent more time praising God or boasting in God for His amazing grace, His marvelous grace, His infinite, matchless, unending grace, life would be much more pleasant. We're taught to pray, are we not? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are they doing in heaven? They're boasting in the glorious grace of God. So then what ought we to do? If we, if we want to see a manifestation of that prayer, then we ought to be boasting consistently in the grace of God. We would be much happier people if we would spend more time boasting in the grace of God. So now that you've heard it, you have another uh, a tool in your arsenal, another area where you can boast in God for His grace. So let's... Pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you once again for your grace. And we wish that we could plumb its depths and we wish that we could, we could say more. We wish we understood better. But Lord, we pray that you would take our, our offering, our service, and that you would use it, that you would water it with the help of your spirit, that you would bring forth fruit in all of our lives, and that we would go forth from here boasting in the amazing grace of God your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for this immeasurable gift. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.